Man in the Window contains depictions of sexual violence and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. The kids growing up in the 1990s in a tidy suburban enclave of Citrus Heights live by a rule. Stay away from the man in the cream-colored house on Canyon Oak Drive. But the kids who live next door, like Kevin Tapia and Grant Gorman, can't avoid him. If he saw us or heard us, he would start yelling at us to get away from the fence and stop looking in his yard. And like, who the fuck do you think you are doing this yard work this early in the morning? Their neighbor yells at everyone, not just the neighborhood kids. He yells at their mothers, at his young daughters, at himself. On summer nights, it's a treat for Grant to sleep out in the backyard. The three of us, my little sister and my twin brother, had this giant trampoline that acted as our mattress. And we get our sleeping bags out and a couple blankets and late into the night, just be playing games with each other, bring out some snacks and ghost stories, things like that. But then late in the night, they wake up to someone shouting. Rambling, cuss-infused rants. The same curse words, just a lot of the repeating, F this, I'll kill you, who, who the fuck do you think you are? From the trampoline, they can see over the fence into the neighbor's yard. They see him pacing in small circles, cursing loudly at no one. And it'd go on for a couple minutes, and he'd just kind of eventually get bored with it and wander back in. The night isn't quiet for long. 20 minutes later, an hour later, two hours later, it's like, I hear that cussing again coming from the backyard. We'd always joke about how Joe was yelling at the aliens in his attic. Joe D'Angelo moved to this street in 1980. His wife once lived in the stucco ranchette, and so did his daughters, and he yelled at them, too. I remember thinking, wow, his daughters must really be misbehaving, or his, his wife must be really acting up. Then, in 1990, the wife and daughters move away. Grant's family brushes off their backyard neighbor as just Crazy Joe, until the day they return home to a message on the answering machine. If you don't shut your dog up, I'll bring a load of death to your home. It's Joe, and Grant's dad goes ballistic. He walked right out of the kitchen, up to this fence, and just stood up on the fence and just started laying into him. Just, get out of that house right now. I know you left that answering machine message. And uh, he actually came out of his house, admitted to leaving the answering machine message, and then tried to talk to my dad about how he needed to shut the dog up. And my dad was like, I don't care about the dog anymore. You left a death threat to my family. A few months later, the family's three-year-old Rottweiler suddenly falls ill. It was a young, healthy dog. She can't move, and the vet thinks it's a thyroid problem. So Grant's parents euthanize the dog. The more Grant thinks about the dog's death, the more he wonders whether Joe had something to do with it. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Paige St. John, and this is Man in the Window.
is Episode 6, Resurrection. By 1991, there's just one remaining Sacramento County detective on the East Area Rapist case, Jim Bevins. But he's retiring and getting ready to leave town. The hunt for the rapist has eaten up years of his life and cost him his marriage. Now, Bevins is walking away, but he can't quite bring himself to get rid of the case files. He called me up and said, come get this report, so I'm going to burn him. Inspector Richard Shelby, who was kicked off the case years ago, comes to the rescue. I picked up, brought him here, and then he packed up. Shelby's approaching retirement himself, but his stubborn tenacity gets the best of him. The file cabinet or boxes? Or? Boxes, cardboard boxes. I brought him here. How many? Jeez. A One, bit, five. A, bit, a van load. Oh. <laughs> and I had him under the house. And it wasn't much of a basement. A similar document rescue takes place in Contra Costa County. Detective Larry Crompton walks into an office and he sees stacked boxes, the East Area Rapist case files. Asked him, what are you doing? Well, getting rid of it. We don't have room for it. The sheriff said to destroy it. And I said, no, you're not. And I put it in my car and I kept it. Neither detective has a plan for the files but they're damned if they'll let the case they helped build be destroyed. It's the beginning of the B-Team, a group of tenacious retired detectives who band together with volunteers, a social worker, a retired senior Homeland Security officer, and a youth counselor. Together, they refuse to let the investigation die. The A-Team, meanwhile, is trying a new tack. Then I had gotten DNA profiles from three of the Contra Costa County cases. In 1997, Paul Holes is a criminalist for Contra Costa County Sheriff. Using the rather crude technology of the day and tiny fragments of DNA from old rape kits, Holes has cobbled together a sort of genetic Cinderella slipper for the East Area Rapist. And he wants to know if Crompton has any suspects he'd like to try the shoe on. And I was hitting him up asking, who are your top suspects? You know, with the hope that guys at that time in 1997 get, get a DNA sample from them and just basically say, hey, you know, here's who the stereorapist was. Even if they could put the pieces together, there'd be no way to prosecute. The statute of limitations is long expired. It's more just to answer that as a curiosity than anything. Crompton says, no, but since you bring it up... If you can get a criminalist in Southern California to work with you, I know of five homicides that they have had down there. I know it's the same person. Nobody will believe me. Nobody will believe us at all. Sixteen years earlier, Santa Barbara had denied a connection. And when Holes calls, they haven't changed their position. But Orange County has been taking a fresh look at some of the murders. Using the latest DNA technology, they've finally tied them to a single serial killer. Holes gets a copy of the results, but he can't compare them to the ones from his lab because he's using older equipment. And so the case goes back on the shelf where it remains for four years. I end up moving on from the case, to be honest. 
It isn't until 2001 that Holes gets another chance. By now, he's running the crime lab and he has the right equipment. He asks an analyst to process semen from the rape kits, compare the results with that from the murders in Southern California. He's sitting in his office when the analyst walks in. He just said, oh, they're the same guy. That's when I'm pushing back from my desk going, you're kidding. After 20 years, this finally is the missing DNA link. The murders in Southern California connected to 50 rapes and sexual assaults in Northern California. A genetic fingerprint tied to one anonymous man. Holes ships the East Area Rapist files to a cold case investigator in Orange County named Larry Poole. I I thought it was a matter of, you know, a few months and Larry Poole's going to have the theory solved. (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) But there is no revelation, no name to match to the DNA waiting in some golden database. And then it just kind of went cold. Where it does heat up, is on the chat board for a true crime TV show that features the unsolved case. It spurs armchair sleuths and true crime aficionados to come up with their own theories. The detectives working the case don't want to deal with this unruly and quarrelsome civilian posse, but not Crompton and Shelby. They each publish much of the case notes in books to arm this posse with more information. They welcome the extra hands. Law enforcement themselves are not going to solve these crimes. You need the citizens. You need the involvement of others. That campaign is helped in 2013 when Los Angeles-based true crime writer Michelle McNamara writes a magazine piece about the case and its devoted online following. She dubs the serial rapist and murderer the Golden State Killer. She says people will pay more attention to a killer with a catchier moniker. Some of the amateur sleuths develop an encyclopedic grasp of the case, and others are keen researchers. There's people who tell me stuff where I come across a report, spot something. Soon, Shelby starts chasing those tips. You got to send it off to ID to have somebody's fingerprint compared, or I do a little background myself. And then I got a couple of leads I followed up on my own and just took off from there. I back into that crap again. And were you back all the way in? Like, you find yourself following people? Oh, I did, yeah. I went back in. I was calling all kinds of people, knocking on doors. Even a couple times I picked up through trash. I had tested one bag of trash. I had it tested three times before I got the guy's DNA. Shelby fishes out bits of garbage he thinks might contain genetic material, and he pays $800 a pop to run DNA samples. In one place, we went, went to a restaurant. We knew the guy was going to be there. We talked to the people running, the small one. And uh, we waited till he was gone. He came in and took his whole plate and the silver knife and all that stuff and wrapped it up in the saran wrap for us. We just took the spoon or fork or something like that and, and had it tested. Once again, no match. You've been down many roads like that. Yeah, sure have. <laughs> through 40-some 40, 40 years of those kind of little dead ends. That's right. <laughs> what, 43 years, something like that. It's been a long time. Meanwhile, active police aren't faring much better. Law enforcement has access to a DNA database for convicted felons, 
and they don't find a match there. But there are other databases, ones that include hundreds of thousands of people who have never run afoul of the criminal justice system. Genealogy websites. A team of investigators, including an FBI agent, Sacramento detective Ken Clark, and Paul Holtz, starts quietly snooping around on some of the smaller websites, usually used by people researching their family trees. But not nearly so simple. And to oversimplify it, basically you're talking about fragments of these chromosomes that you're matching and you're getting bits of information, right? Right. We're not, um, you know, the forensic DNA testing side is looking at just very lengths of DNA across the chromosomes. Hull's team tries searching for a match on a database using genetic markers for the male chromosome. And then all of a sudden I had a, it turned out it was like a 11 marker match. 11 markers for a profile posted by a man named Scott Case for the Eastman family line. Someone who could be a male relative of the killer. So I got excited about it. It was like, oh, we have something here. So I'm screaming up the freeway to meet with Ken Clark at Sac Sheriff's office and his team telling them, look at what I've got. And then they're in a scramble going, oh, my God. So the detectives do something a little unorthodox. The Sacramento team creates a fake account on the genealogy site and tries to flush out Scott Case. Two months pass, and Case doesn't respond. Holes starts preparing a search warrant to force the website to open its files. And next thing you know, I've got Ken Clark hitting me up saying, Scott Case communicated. Oh, and here's, here's his actual email address. Holes does a search for the email address on the Internet, which leads him to a YouTube video about the East Area Rapist. And the man speaking on the screen is a retired senior Homeland Security officer. What the hell's going on here? Scott Case, of the Eastman family line, is the fake identity created by people working with Richard Shelby. The A-team and the B-team have managed only to find each other. They were each trying to lure in somebody, and they lured each other in. (laughs) So... (laughs) I mean, we were chasing our tail on this. This was just a cat and mouse, active investigators and private investigators. Three years later, Holes is still plugging away, using DNA fragments on the Y chromosome site. It's early 2017 when he finds a second match to an old man in a convalescent home in Oregon. Right away, they realize he's not their killer. But there's a match on 53 of the 67 genetic markers. It's not exact, but they're getting closer. Which was, wow, you know, that's that's pretty significant. Sort of. That puts him related to the Golden State Killer about 900 years ago. That means 900 years ago, this man and the Golden State Killer had a common ancestor. The link is so weak, there is nothing to pursue. After striking out twice, the cold case team seeks out a better DNA profile the full 23 chromosomes. But every time a crime lab runs a DNA test, it uses up some of the precious little evidence left. And Orange County refuses to give holes any more of its remaining samples. So he turns to Ventura County, 
and they find a gold mine of Golden State Killer DNA. It's semen from the rape check performed on Charlene Smith, one of the female murder victims. The sample had been left in a vial tucked away by the county coroner 37 years ago. A genetic genealogist joins the small team. At this point, they're no longer looking for the killer. They're looking for his family. Their tool is a free online database called GEDmatch, in which users upload and share their DNA codes. GEDmatch's computers can sift through those DNA profiles in hours, identifying a parent or a sibling or a distant cousin. In January 2018, Holes loads the new full DNA profile, and he waits. Jedmatch does not provide a direct hit. They get a single match, a fourth cousin, meaning the pool of potential suspects could be as small as 900 people or as many as 23,000. It's up to the detectives to build a gigantic family tree to find them. The hunt requires ancestry records, newspaper clippings, old census files, private and public databases for people to add to the family tree. When they get to the male family members alive in the 1970s, they look for those who match the East Area Rapist. The right age, the right body build, a presence in California. Half a dozen men emerge as new suspects. Holes starts making calls to old associates, employers, and to a woman whose picture appears in a faded newspaper clipping. It's the engagement notice for a young couple named Bonnie and Joe. You know, when I do my initial outreach, it's, it's a very soft sell. He tracks down Bonnie Colwell, who now has a different name and a new life. Holes has planned what he'll say when she picks up the phone. Hi, you know, my name is Paul Holes, Contra Costa County uh, DA's office. I, I'm looking into an old case. Um, this person that you might know uh, has kind of come up in my investigation and I'd love to talk to you. But when Holes calls, there's no answer on Bonnie's phone and he has to leave a message. I'm looking at it, Joseph D'Angelo, as a, a name that's come up. You know, are you the Bonnie that was engaged? Bonnie's out of the country and doesn't hear the message for more than a month. He said I didn't. He he didn't know if I was ducking his call, and I wasn't going to talk to him. Yeah, there would have been that thought, but at that point, but I was in a scramble because I was within days of retiring. Uh, I said, "Well, if I'd answered the phone, well, what would you have asked me?" But he told me if I had told him the story about Joe and the gun, he said he would have raced to the top. The small team the FBI, Sacramento, and Contra Costa counties, is getting tantalizingly close to solving the case. But every new name that pops up turns out to be the wrong guy. And Holes starts to expect disappointment. Once I ended up moving away from a guy in Colorado, then it was like, the only person I have left is this D'Angelo. But he's skeptical for one big reason. Joe is a former police officer. 
all the way up at Auburn during the time that these dare rapists is attacking all over Northern California? How could that be? Hull's doubts that a police officer could slip away so easily and not be noticed. But he chases the lead anyway. Who else knows this guy? He finds former Auburn police chief Nick Willick. Uh, and Nick is telling me about, you know, being threatened to be killed by D'Angelo. And then, then eventually the big story about Nick's asleep and then his daughter. She comes in, wakes him up and says, Daddy, there's a man standing outside my bedroom window shining a flashlight in. This time, detectives don't ask for permission from the suspect. An agent tails Joe D'Angelo to a hobby store and swabs the door handle of his car while he's inside the shop. The Sacramento Crime Lab says it's only a partial match. The sample contains DNA from three different people. So they try again. They sit outside of D'Angelo's house for three days, waiting for the night he puts out his trash. An agent covertly digs through the trash, grabbing bits of garbage. He pulls out a piece of used tissue. The DNA test comes back positive. It's a match. Days after the lab results come back, in April 2018, Grant Gorman's mother calls him. Something big is happening at the cream-colored house on Canyon Oak. She knows I work nights, but she called me at 8 o'clock in the morning, so I knew something was going on. And uh, she said they arrested the Golden State Killer. It's that guy next door. There's a swarm of local and federal police at Joe D'Angelo's suburban house. Psychiatrists had long told officers that if given the chance, the East Area rapist would rather kill than be arrested. So when police came to arrest Joe D'Angelo, they didn't give him a chance to go back into his house. The entire street in front of him is filled all the way down around the corner on Canyon Oak, all the way down with cop cars, FBI cars, vans for processing all the evidence, uh, helicopters, news crews, looky-loos showing up right away. There's the, the FBI like team like prodding through the backyard. They're hunting for the many trophies the rapist took from his victims. The rings, the coins, the fraternal tokens. They were just going through with like pokers, and looking for any changes in density of the ground or indication there might be something buried, they'd mark it with a flag. But nothing comes out of the ground. A detective says even the walls of Joe's house are opened in the fruitless search. Still, that doesn't seem to bother the agents gathered in Joe's backyard. They were all having a great time. Like a lot of people down there looked happy that day. Joseph James D'Angelo has been called a lot of things by law enforcement. He's been called the East Side Rapist. He's been called the Visalia Ransacker, the original Night Stalker, and the Golden State Killer. Today, it's our pleasure to call him defendant. Bonnie's in Italy when the news of Joe's arrest reaches her. She's floored when she learns a rape victim once heard the attacker sob, I hate you, Bonnie. For decades, it had been a minor detail in the case files. Suddenly, it's being treated like an explanation for the rape and murder. And he must be thinking about Bonnie over these years, over these decades. 
Paul Holes is repeatedly quoted saying such things in the press. And there are headlines labeling Bonnie as the sweetheart who broke the killer's heart. There's been speculation and talk about these being rage and revenge killings and rapes that were triggered by the breakup of our relationship. And I've just not been willing to wear that. I think that they came entirely from him. It's all his. I, I, can't, I won't take it on. I just won't. It's another form of, of blaming the victim, right? Of course. A year later, crime shows will still talk about her as the trigger for the violent attacks. She was once named one of Sacramento's Outstanding Women of the Year for her civic volunteerism. Now, when Bonnie goes to get her driver's license updated, the clerk behind the counter says, Oh, you're that Bonnie. She means Joe D'Angelo's Bonnie. When Judy's eldest brother learns the news about Joe, he calls the siblings together to tell them. Judy struggles to reconcile the boy her family all but adopted with a serial killer. One of my younger brothers, you know, he's crying and he says, why didn't he come to one of us? Just the other day, Joe called to take Judy's son out on his boat to go fishing. Her brother says, I should have seen something. I spent so much time with him, you know. At first, they're astonished. If the allegations are true, how could they have missed the signs? Judy's brother, Joe's best friend, says they can't blame themselves. Joe was good at hiding it. He wouldn't have noticed anything. He was so good at covering it up. And and all that cover-up for all those years, you know, I'm surprised he didn't explode and blow his own head off, but he didn't. He expressed his stress and anger and pent-up emotions in in hurting other people. I feel so sorry for him. I really do. Um, You know, he's he's a victim, too, when you think about it. Victim of circumstances, a victim of home life. Judy talks about Joe like a lost family member. One of my brothers says, you know, if you never believed in the devil, he says, when you look at this, you can you can believe in the devil because he says evil is out there among us. Evil is uh, is stalking us all the time. And they just found a weakness in Joe. We found the needle in the haystack. And it was right here in Sacramento. And with that, I would like to introduce our Phyllis is in the living room when the news comes on our TV. For over 40 years, countless victims have waited for justice. Phyllis waited most of her adult life for her rapist to be captured. She always imagined it would be a moment of joy. I had always figured that they would find him or something and and I'd be, yay, they got him. But the news report hits her hard. Holy crap, holy. I cried. It wasn't a rush of joy, I can tell you that. I was like, oh my God. Oh, the heart was one. And I'm going, well, I immediately sat down and 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 it was just like the tears just wouldn't stop. Not, not blubbering, it's just they were just coming out, you know? And it, it was... And then you sit there and try, why am I crying for him because he's caught? 
She knows why she's crying. No, I'm crying for me. I'm crying for me because, oh my God, what now? But I don't know. The district attorney's office didn't warn Phyllis the arrest was coming. But soon, prosecutors are telling victim number one they might want her to testify in court. And the news lands like a bowling ball dropped on her foot. Yeah, yeah, like a thud, you know. You're not going to be able to, you know, miss that hint. We'll take you to the courtroom, show you where you're going to sit, where we're going to sit, where he's going to sit. It's the idea of facing Joe D'Angelo that terrifies her. I don't want to be at the first when he shows emotions. I don't want to see a smirk on his face. Right away, the nightmares return. I'm starting to get dreams again. You hadn't had dreams in like 30 years, 40 years, you know, it just, but I'm starting to get the dreams and it's. <sighs> in one, Phyllis is in her father's old house in her old bedroom and she can hear a sound. Like someone was <sighs> banging and I can't turn the light off to look out the window. The light won't go off. So she can't look out without being seen. She's trapped in the house. She tries to call the police, but the phone is dead. I could hear it sound like someone was chiseling. And I woke up, you know, pounding heart, pounding heart. Chiseling around the deadbolt is how the rapist got in. Chris McFarlane kept the secret of a rape while her father was alive. But after he died, her husband set aside a copy of the newspaper in 2018 with a story for her to read. She's astonished to see it's a victim of the East Area Rapist telling her story publicly, Jane Carson Sandler. Chris, now 56, is ready to face what happened when she was 15. She reaches out to the volunteer network of people trying to solve the case and connects with Carol Daly, now long since retired. And Daly brings Chris a copy of her police report. I was so nervous. I, I, I was a wreck. I thought, I just, I don't know why. My anxiety was high. My sister was here. So I called her and said, do you want to come over? Because mom and dad aren't alive anymore, so we can actually talk about this now. Her husband joins them at the dining table. So I said, how about I just read this to you guys? Because I knew they're not going to... There's icky stuff in there, and they're both going to feel weird. Right. So it's probably just better if I read it out right. loud. Everybody hears it one time. We don't pass it around. or you know. So I did. I don't even want to get emotional right now. but No, it's, that's, it's okay. And whenever you need, stop, you know. Like, I, I have been, I'm in and out. Right. In five seconds, I'll be just fine. Yeah. 45 seconds, I'll be News of D'Angelo's arrest resurrects the fear Chris tried to bury long ago. I was sitting in that hotel room, and I feel like I went into, not going to say shock, because I don't really know what that is, but I was very numb. And my husband called me, and I, I tried to talk, but nothing would come out. He's like, are you there? Like, I, I just couldn't talk. For Chris and Phyllis, it's as if the man who terrorized them has been exhumed from the grave. The panic attacks resume. She startles at unexpected noises, like the day her son comes home and Chris panics running into the street. And the nightmares. In one of the dreams, 
Chris gets up in the night. So I walked over to the bed and I pulled the covers back slowly because I didn't know what I was going to see. And um, there was a 12-year-old girl. And I recognized her and I said, oh my gosh, it's your 12-year-old self and you're so happy. I'm so glad to see you. This makes me cry right now. And um, and all of a sudden, like in my hallway, and um, I looked on the wall and there were just like fingerprints all over the wall. And, um, and they were like charcoal. And they were just everywhere, all over the wall. Like the black powder police use to dust for fingerprints. When I got by the bathroom door, I looked in and there was this girl. And she had um, a charcoal, well, she had a cross on her neck right here. And it was made with the same stuff that was on the wall. And she looked at me and she said, I think I lost it. Chris has spent a lifetime burying the rape so deeply, there are nights when she nudges her husband awake in bed and says, Steve, I don't know that this really happened. And he's like, it happened. Maybe she made it all up. He's like, it happened. It's like, how do you know it happened? You know it happened because I told you it happened. But I don't even know if it happened. And he just kept saying, it happened. She is ready to stop running. I am learning of how I have been, how I've shaped the world and some of my behaviors have absolutely been defined and I am pissed. (laughs) The control he was able to take in a three-hour period of time one day out of my life. I told you at the beginning that I wasn't really feeling the anger. I'm starting to feel the anger. And now I'm like, oh, you son of a bitch. Chris steps into the therapist's waiting room with its piped music, the soothing waterfall in the corner, and the incense in the air. The California legislature has passed a special law making victims of the East Area Rapist eligible for victim services, even if the clock has expired on the statute of limitations. And Chris finds Mary Regal, a trauma specialist. Back in the 70s, I think all that would have been done, maybe some hypnosis but and talk therapy would have been occurred, perhaps, if people were working on it. Nothing else was really out there for that, aside from giving men and women who had gone through this, um, drugs, you know, psychotropic drugs. But treatment today has changed a great deal. Together, they've been using a range of different techniques, trying to process the trauma by stimulating both the right and left sides of the brain, tapping parts of the body, left, right, left, right, as they revisit a traumatic memory. So I'm just going to use a pen. So if, if I do this... Mary glides the pen past Chris's face, left to right, watching her eyes for the slight twitch. While you think of the bad thing, I'm going to tap, or I'm going to move your eyes back and forth, or I'm going to have you listen to this music. Um, Your brain's going to get the idea. It's not happening now that, in fact, you're safe. 
Chris has made the decision to recall her rape, to face the bomb and defuse it. The first session is exhausting. With Mary, Chris gets no further than the piano bench, where she sat the moment a man put a knife to her throat. It's the bench. It's, it's, the, it's the blitz. It's the, I'm playing my piano, now I might die. Like, all in a second. It's, a, it's just a, it's, it's a frozen feel without being cold, with like a, a shot of fear that goes through it. Spent by the effort, she steps outside into the bright sunshine, and a surprise awaits in the parking lot. Duff, and there she was in front of my car. Like, oh! So I figured, well, you know, I'm going to go and be there in case, you know, make sure everything's okay. It's Phyllis. The arrest has brought some of the victims together. Chris and Phyllis met at a court hearing and have become close friends. They both have the same therapist, and they talk for hours every week. She knows how I feel. I know how she feels. You sit there and you talk to some people, and, well, you know, we understand what you're going, but they don't understand. They don't understand the, what you went through, the, the fear, being scared, are you going to die, type of thing. But um, it was easy with Chris, I don't know to tell you. <laughs> well, I think that there's also, for me anyways, there's an element of trust. Mm. Because we say some pretty crazy things sometimes. But it's not off limits. The two women have no resolution, no idea of what lies ahead. Joseph D'Angelo is now charged with 13 murders. He cannot be charged for any of the rapes. The statute of limitations on those ran out decades ago. But prosecutors are pressing 13 counts of kidnapping for purposes of robbery all those demands for money. It's one last slap from the 1970s. Robbery trumps rape. A year after the arrest, there has yet to be a preliminary hearing. D'Angelo has not had a chance to enter a plea, and neither he nor his public defender would comment on the case. And prosecutors say trial could be four years away. And so Richard Shelby found his own way to close the case. I was going to ask that you take me up to... to um, burn spot? Yeah, the burn spot. The historical part. Shelby climbs the hill in his mandarin grove. It's a beautiful spring day in the California foothills, the air so crisp you can see the Pacific Coastal Range off to the west and the Sierra Nevada to the east. You had the brush pile there already. There was some brush there, yeah. Yeah. Old stumps, you can see a piece of one right there. He insists he has no emotional attachment to the case. But the day after Joe D'Angelo is arrested, Shelby decides to destroy the files that he and the civilian posse had amassed. Did you carry the boxes up by hand? Oh, yeah. And so, a box at a time, he carries...
carried the files up to the top of his mandarin grove, to this spot, and lifted up some of the brush. Put those reports under it, stuck a match to it, and watched it go. Had no need for that stuff. (laughs) No need for it at all. The sun was shining. It was nice out. Good day to burn it. that's left behind are bits of charred paper, a torn shipping label, and the blackened dirt. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part six of Man in the Window. On the next episode, I'll be talking with Laura Beale, host of the Wondery series, Dr. Death, about my reporting. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, reach out for help. In the U.S., you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Or you can chat anonymously with a hotline staffer by messaging the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at online.rainn.org. We'd like to express our gratitude to the women willing to tell their stories. Man in the Window was written and reported by me, Paige St. John. Senior producer and editor is Karen Lowe. Associate producer is Casey Georgie. Original music by Allison Leighton Brown. Music coordinator is Marcelino Villalpando. Sound design by Spoke Media. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clow and Shelby Grad. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. <laughs> <laughs>